In our last study from the book of Romans, we looked at perhaps what is the most popular verse in the whole letter. Romans 8.28 is one of the most amazing promises, not just in the book of Romans, but indeed in all of Scripture. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. That verse teaches us that God providentially rules and overrules in all of the affairs of life for the welfare of His children. He is always active for the good of His people. For those who love Him, those who are effectually called by Him according to His purpose, God works every detail of their lives for their good. Now that is an incredible promise for everyone who trusts Jesus Christ as Lord. It means that Christians can be sure that there's nothing that will enter into our lives that has not first filtered through the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. God intends all things that happen to us to be for our good. Brothers and sisters, what that means is that if you are poor, God is working your poverty for your welfare. It means if you have lost a loved one and you're grieving over that, that God intends in and through your grief to work this for your everlasting good. It means that no matter what your trials are, if, if you are experiencing unmet godly desires, godly longings that these unfulfilled desires thus far are being used by God because He is determined that this is for your good. Well, these are wonderful assurances that we have from this great promise. The confidence that we can have knowing that God is always working in our life this way, it enables us to live joy-filled, contented lives. But our faith in this promise and the joy that arises from it can only be sustained if we are clear in understanding what God means by good. What is the good that God is working all things together for in our lives? Well, we don't have to speculate in trying to come up with an answer to that question. Because the Apostle Paul himself answers it for us in the verses that immediately follow verse 28. In verses 29 and 30 of Romans 8, Paul tells us the basis on which the promise stands in verse 28. In doing so, he reveals to us that the good that God will infallibly do for his children is to secure our salvation from start to finish. He's going to use everything in order to bring us safely home. Well, let's read our text together, Romans 8, 29 and 30, and spend a few minutes understanding what God's Spirit is saying to us this morning. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you'll find this on page 944. And though we've already looked at verse 28 in a previous sermon, I want to begin reading in that passage because, or in that verse, because this is a vital part of the paragraph. So hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 8, beginning 
in verse 28, read down to verse 30 with the latter two verses comprising our text. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, verses 29 and 30 have been called, at least since the era of the Puritans, the golden chain of salvation. Because the way that Paul links together these various aspects of God's working in behalf of sinners to save them is an amazing testimony of his grace and his power. This work from God extends from eternity past in foreknowledge, in predestination, all the way to eternity future in glorification. And though there is much more to be said about all that is involved in our salvation than what Paul puts in these two verses, what he says here is enough to guarantee us that God secures his people's salvation from start to finish. We see this by looking at the five words that Paul uses regarding how God's grace comes to us in Jesus Christ. These five words identify five vital doctrines describing God's intervention in our behalf to save us. Foreknew, you see that one? Predestined, called, justified, glorified. These are the five links in this golden chain. They have been forged in heaven by God himself. And because each one of them describes the work that God does, not what we might do, we can be sure this chain is unbreakable. And what is revealed here is the promise that from beginning to end, God guarantees the eternal salvation of his people. Look at that little word for at the beginning of verse 29. By that word, Paul ties together what he has just written in verse 28 to what he is about to write in verses 29 and 30. The reason that we know that God rules and overrules everything for the welfare of his children is due to the fact that he secures the salvation of his children from start to finish. Well, let's look at the five links in this golden chain of salvation to see how they provide Christians firm assurance that we will be forever right with God. Verse 29, for God foreknew us. God foreknew us. Now, before looking at what this means, I need to take just a minute or two and explain what it doesn't mean. Because it is commonly, though mistakenly, taken to mean that in this word, Paul is referring merely to God's omniscience, to the fact that he is aware of things before they happen. And so some would take this verse to say that God from eternity past looked down through the corridors of history and he saw who would trust Jesus and that he determined that he would indeed save those people who he foresaw would trust the Lord Jesus. In other words, God is prescient. He has knowledge of things before they actually happen. Well, make no mistake, God is indeed prescient. 
God does know everything before anything ever occurs. My friend Tom Nettles stunned me one day with this question. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? That's true. There's nothing that God has not already known. He is not bound by time like we are. He is eternal. Time is His creation. So He is above time. He's before time. He's outside of time. As we heard read from Psalm number 90 earlier in this service. But notice that the text doesn't say what God foreknew. It says those whom He foreknew. What is in mind here is people, not the actions of people. And these people whom God foreknew are the same people that we find throughout the other four links of this chain. The ones He foreknew, He predestined. The ones He predestined, He called. The ones He called, He justified. The ones He justified, He glorified. This is the same people. What this means is that God has loved us from the beginning. The meaning of the word foreknew is really key here. It's a compound word. We see that in English. It's the exact same thing in the Greek of the New Testament. Two words that are put together for one new word. The first is in English, for, which translates this Greek preface that prefix that simply means beforehand. The second word is new, which in this context means to have an intimate knowledge of, not merely a mental awareness of. The real key to understanding this is to zero in on the word know. Know. What does this word know mean? Well, it can mean to have an intellectual understanding. It can mean to have simply a mental awareness of things that are going around or in God's sense, even before they occur. But in Scripture, it often means much more as it does here in verse 29. Here, it means an intimate, personal knowledge. It means a relationship. Just consider how Scripture does this regularly in Old Testament and New Testament with this word know. So, for example, in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, God is not saying there, I'm ignorant of the Philistines. I'm not aware of the Amalekites. No, He's talking about knowing His people in a selective way, in a peculiar way, in a covenantal way, in a way that there is relationship. The same thing is true when He speaks to the prophet Jeremiah about his knowledge of Jeremiah before Jeremiah was even born. In Jeremiah 1.5, he says to the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you to be prophet to the nations. So he's not talking about, Jeremiah, I, I knew you intellectually before you were born. Well, that's true of everyone. There's nothing unique about Jeremiah. In that regard, but rather he is singling out the intimate relationship, the love that he had set upon Jeremiah before Jeremiah was born that would then commission him to be a prophet. 
Or look at Luke chapter 1 and verse 34 after the angel comes to Mary. And Mary's a virgin. And he says to her, you're going to conceive. And you're going to give birth to a son. This son is going to be the savior of the world. And Mary's response is, how will this be? And the ESV version that we use says, since I am a virgin. And that's the exact meaning of her question. But it is not the exact words that she used in phrasing the question. If you look at older translations, the King James or the New King James, you'll see that it says, seeing how I know not a man. I have not known a man. She wasn't ignorant. She wasn't unaware of men. She had never had that intimate relationship that is constituted by sexual intercourse with any man. She didn't know a man. Or Matthew chapter 7, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when our Lord speaks those, those horrific words, those words that ought to haunt anyone who is just playing around with Christianity. In Matthew 7, he says, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus never knew them. Is he, gonna, is he saying, I don't know who you guys are. It's not that. It's not mental awareness. It is relationship. It is love. It is union. This is what Paul means by the word foreknew in our text this morning. I like the way that the late James Boyce explains this word in its context. He writes, in this sense it can only mean that God has fixed a special attention upon them or loved them savingly. In other words, brothers and sisters, what this means, if you're trusting Christ today, God foreknew you. He loved you from eternity past. He set His love upon you before your mother ever saw your face. He determined to have you before this world was ever created. As you trust in the Lord and you meditate on this phrase, those whom He foreknew, you'll discover an astounding truth that should stun you and cause you to love and worship God even more. As the Lord said to His people in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Brothers and sisters, God says that to you in our text. An everlasting love. Let your mind just dwell on that. Turn that over. Contemplate that. All that you've been through. Your heritage. Where you came from. And your father. And your father's father. God determined that you would be his child. Because he sovereignly loved you. He's always loved you. God's love is not contingent on what you have done or what you will do. He can never love you more 
then He has always loved you. And there's not anything that you can do to cause Him to love you less. Because His love is not contingent. In eternity past, He set His saving love on you. Well, that is a mind-boggling truth, and it ought to cause each one of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ to love God with a greater love. And it should cause those of you who have not yet come to trust the Lord Jesus Christ to turn to Him today. I mean, everyone looks for love. Everyone wants to be loved, and we want to be loved the way we were designed to be loved. And guess what? Not your husband, not your wife, not your mom, not your dad can do that. Some people spend their whole lives looking for such love. For somebody to care for them. Somebody to watch over them through thick and thin, never to forsake them, never to have their love waver. And if that's you this morning and you have not become jaded in your search, you need to know that the only place such love is found is in God's provision for sinners like you in His Son, Jesus Christ. The only way you will ever experience this love is by right now, turn from your sin and trust Christ. In Christ, you will enter into what Paul's talking about here and you will begin to discover as you trust the Lord Jesus God, who gave up His Son for you, has always loved you. You'll be able to say with Paul, He foreknew me. From eternity past, He loved me. Well, that's the first and the most important link of this golden chain of salvation. God foreknew us. The second link is that God predestined us. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, oftentimes I, I've heard the question asked and had it put to me, well, maybe you've asked it too. Is predestination in the Bible? Does the Bible teach predestination? Well, the only answer to that question is, of course. I mean, here it is. It's the word in the text. Very often what people mean by that question is, but is it really true that God sees the end from the beginning and that God's working everything out according to a definite plan? And that's what this word actually means. It also is a compound word. The, the first word is that same prefix, which means beforehand. But the second word is destined or destiny. In the language that Paul wrote in, it means to set something forth, to place something, or to set a boundary. Therefore, to predestine something is to, or a person is to set that person's destiny beforehand. It is to determine beforehand that this person will be a certain way or arrive in a certain place. Well, what is the destiny that God has chosen beforehand for those whom he foreknew? We see it in the text. He has predestined us to become just like Jesus Christ. Do you see it? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. What is the goal 
of God's predestinating grace? It is to make us like Jesus Christ, to conform people, the people whom he savingly loves, into Christ's likeness. So immediately we've got to ask the question, well, what was Christ like? Well, you'll only answer that question by studying the life of Jesus Christ on earth. And whenever you do, you will see that he was holy. He was completely devoted to God. He was completely obedient to God. He loves God supremely and he loves people sincerely. He describes himself as gentle and lowly, submissive to God's will. He was humble, even though he was God in flesh. So humble that he gave up his life in death, even the death of a cross. Well, how did Jesus get that way? Again, you must study the life of Christ in the New Testament. But here's a good verse for you to use as kind of a springboard into that study. Hebrews 5.8 It tells us that though he was a son, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He learned obedience through suffering. The eternal Son of God learned obedience through suffering. The early church father, Augustine, said God had one son on earth without sin, but not one without suffering. Our Lord, our master, suffered in his life on earth, and we are his disciples. Brothers and sisters, we follow Christ on the pathway of suffering because that path is the only way to our destiny of being conformed fully to his image. You see how Paul also speaks of the ultimate purpose of this goal of predestination. He predestined us to be conformed. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he's telling us the purpose that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, God did it this way for Christ's sake. He has Christ's preeminence in mind. He wants Jesus to receive something by virtue of the way that he saves sinners. It's for the purpose of Christ fulfilling his role as the firstborn of a great family of siblings. The New Testament elsewhere refers to Jesus as the firstborn. And this designation is used to call to our minds his primacy as the eternal and only begotten Son of God, as well as to remind us of his superiority over all others who will share in his sonship. I love the way that R.C. Sproul applied this to himself as he took Paul's words in this text and began to think about his own salvation, this is what he said. The only reason God has saved me is for the sake of Jesus Christ. The ultimate reason for predestination is the honor and glory of Jesus. Jesus is the reason for the universe. The goal of creation is that Christ might have the preeminence. Brothers and sisters, your salvation is all of grace. God loved you before the world was ever created, spoken into existence by his power. 
God predestinated that you should be conformed to the image of His only Son before the world began. Our salvation is all because of God. God planned it. He accomplished it. And He did so, so that His Son, Jesus Christ, might be seen to be preeminent and glorious and receive all the honor that He is due. So our salvation is not primarily about us. It's primarily about Christ. God saves sinners in the way that he does so that Christ will be honored and glorified. Well, brothers and sisters, seeing this, believing this, this should become our greatest motivation in seeking to make disciples for Jesus. Yes, if they don't trust Jesus, they go to a horrible, eternal destiny of hell under the wrath of God forever. That's that's motivation But greater motivation is we have King Jesus who is worthy of being known and loved and trusted and followed and obeyed by everyone in the world. And for his honor, we ought to be pleading with men and women and children to come to Christ. To trust the Lord Jesus, to turn from sin. And again, I know there are those you you hear this morning and, and you're not trusting Christ. And I want you to hear the plea one more time that for the sake of God's eternal Son, turn from your sin and entrust yourself to Him. He is worthy of all of your confidence. The doctrine of predestination is a wonderful teaching of God's Word. So is the doctrine of foreknowledge, God's eternal love of His own people. The third link in this golden chain of salvation is mentioned in verse 30. God called us and those whom He predestined He also called. Now, if you recall, in our study of verse 28, we looked at two different types of calling in the New Testament. What theologians refer to as the general call and the effectual call. The general call is that which goes out every time the gospel is proclaimed, like this morning. So embedded, inherent within the good news of salvation that God sent His Son into the world to save sinners is a call. And every time you hear that call, God is inviting you. Indeed, He's commanding you to turn away from sin and to trust the, Jesus, trust the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That is the general call that goes out every time the gospel is proclaimed. However, what Paul's referring to here and what we find elsewhere in Scripture is what could be called the effectual call. It's that which is not simply the invitation that is inherent in the gospel, but it is when the gospel is proclaimed and the power of God's Spirit owns the word such that it's not just a call, a command to trust Christ. The power comes for you to turn away from sin and actually trust Christ. When the Spirit owns the teaching of His word, He owns the message of the gospel in this way, the call to trust Christ becomes irresistible. He not only invites, He not only calls, He empowers them to trust the Lord Jesus. The effectual call of God's Spirit and Word is wonderfully illustrated in John chapter 11 when Jesus stood before the tomb of His friend Lazarus. If you're familiar with the story, Lazarus had died four days earlier. Word had come to Jesus before He died. But Jesus didn't go and heal him and keep him from dying. He waited until he was dead. And so now he's been dead four days. 
And as a dead man in that tomb, he is a wonderful illustration of the condition of every man, woman, and child by nature. What we are spiritually. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And you know, Mary, Martha, the friends of Lazarus, they could have stood before that tomb of Lazarus and said, Lazarus, we don't want you to be dead anymore. Come back. Come back. It would have done nothing. But when the eternal Son of God stood before that, that tomb where the stone was rolled away, and He said, Lazarus, come out. It wasn't simply an invitation. It was an effectual command, an effectual call that resulted in Lazarus being given back his life, being given power to get up out of that tomb and come forth. That's what happens every time the gospel comes in power to someone causing him or her to turn from sin and trust Jesus. Brothers, sisters, every one of us here in Christ, trusting Christ today, has been called effectually by God's Spirit, or else we would never have trusted Christ. And that's why we can be so confident and hopeful as we talk to people who need to trust Christ. Do you ever find yourself being tempted to think, you know, I don't believe this person will ever come to Christ. He's so hard. He's had so many difficulties in his life, or she's just so resistant. And the temptation is to just give up. Oh, no. When God's Spirit comes in power, that stony heart is broken apart. Eyes are given to see Christ. Ears are given to hear the Gospel. Faith is given to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. That is God's effectual call. Just as God sovereignly and graciously set His love upon us from eternity past, and just as He predestined us sovereignly to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So, when we were converted, He sovereignly worked His grace in our lives, calling us from sin to Jesus. The first link in this golden chain is foreknowledge. God loving us from eternity past. The second link is predestination. God determining from eternity past to conform us to the image of His Son. The third link is God calling us he brought the gospel to us in our own personal histories and made sure that we would receive it in faith. The fourth link in this golden chain of salvation is justification. He justified us. And those whom He called, He also justified. Well, what is justification? Well, in our study through this letter of Romans, we've already spent a great deal of time answering that question because it is the great burden of the Apostle Paul from chapter 3 to chapter, the end of chapter 5 to explain justification by God's grace through faith. But we can summarize what is taught in these chapters by simply using the language of our children's catechism when the question is asked, what is justification? And the answer is, justification is God regarding sinners as if they'd never sinned and granting them righteousness. Justification invokes the scene of a courtroom. It is a declaration by God. And in that courtroom of God, the criminal stands before the bench and he's guilty of all the crimes that he's been charged with. He deserves to be condemned by the law. And yet God, in his courtroom, doesn't condemn. He acquits. He justifies. 
He declares not guilty. And he sends the prisoner free so that he no longer is being threatened by condemnation of the law. That's exactly what God has done for everyone who trusts Jesus Christ. He justifies us. The righteousness that Jesus earned by his life of obedience gets credited to our account. And the death that Jesus died on the cross gets credited to the payment for our sins. So that through faith in Christ, he takes on what we owe and he gives us what he earned. He takes our debt and he gives us his payment. And all of this comes to us through faith. As Paul writes in chapter 3 of Romans, verse 21, as he summarizes his argument, at one point he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then he says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. By faith. This is why calling must precede justification. Because justification comes only through faith. And that faith is granted through the power and effectual calling of God. So justification is the fourth link in this golden, unbreakable chain of salvation. It follows God's effectual call, which follows God's predestination, which follows God's eternal love in foreknowledge. The fifth and the last link of this chain is glorification. God glorified us. You see Paul's language? Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, what is glorification? It is the complete consummation of our salvation. It is the fulfillment of the transformation that we experience when we first come to Christ, bringing us into complete perfect conformity to the image of Christ. This is what every Christian will experience when Jesus Christ returns, when history gives way to eternity. It's what Paul writes about in Romans 6, verse 5, when he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It's what he says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 21, when he says Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. It's what John writes about in 1 John 3, 2, when he says, we don't know what we're all going to be. It's not yet apparent. But this we do know, that when he appears, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. It's that future reality that awaits us to being completely conformed to Christ. But did you notice the tense in which Paul speaks about glorification? He doesn't say, and those who are justified, he will also glorify. He says, no. They are also 
glorified. He speaks of our glorification as a completed event, even though it is still in the future. The point is that the Christian's glorification is just as certain as his justification is. What God will do to complete our salvation is no less secure than what he has already accomplished thus far in our salvation. It's so certain that Paul can write, those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's happened. Brothers and sisters, this is why it's a golden chain of salvation. This is why it's unbreakable. It's because God himself has forged each link with his sovereign grace and power. He has saved you because he purposed to save you. Purposed to save you because he loved you with an everlasting love. Don't miss that little phrase that recurs in this passage. Those whom. Those whom. They're the same people. From eternity past to eternity future. Having been loved by God predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, having been called by God effectually, having been justified by God, you will most certainly be, and indeed in God's eternal mind, you already are glorified by God. So brothers and sisters, our salvation is secure. It's secure because it's an all-God salvation. He undertakes to secure every link in the chain from eternity past to eternity future. Now, this is good news for Christians who know themselves to be weak. Have you ever felt at times like you're just not going to make it? Have you ever just wondered because you find yourself falling again, you find yourself getting apathetic spiritually again, you find yourself getting hard-hearted again? Have you ever wondered? It's no use. No use. I can't do it. And think that you're just not going to make it all the way home. The same gospel that came to you in power to make Jesus Christ precious to you. That called you from sin and darkness into the light of Christ. Is the gospel that God has given to us that assures us you will, in Christ Jesus, make it all the way home. There's no trial. There's no difficulty that will ever sever you from God. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. So keep trusting Him. Keep following Him. Keep repenting of sin. Keep taking Him at His Word. This Word where he promises to secure our salvation from start to finish. I wonder if there's some here this morning and and you're just, for whatever reason, you're afraid to declare yourself to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's because you understand part of the cost involved of discipleship. You read the Bible and you know what it says. You think, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm afraid that I'll start and I'll stop and It won't be sincere. Leave all of that with God. Just take God at His word. Venture yourself fully upon what He has provided for sinners like you and me in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust Christ. 
And know that God will save all who trust Christ and He will save all who trust Christ to the very end. Whenever we confront what the Bible says about God's sovereignty and salvation and we look at these words like election or predestination, there's always the temptation to let speculative thoughts begin to run wild in your mind. Thoughts like these. Well, am I elect? Are my children elect? Am I predestined? Am I in this golden chain of salvation? Brothers and sisters, friends, let me remind you, do not let your mind run down those speculative dead ends. Those aren't the right questions to ask. Rather, the question to ask is what the Apostle Paul exhorts us to do in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, am I in the faith? Do I trust Jesus? Is he my Lord? Do I hate sin? Listen to the counsel of Hugh Latimer, who was a Reformation pastor who was burned at the stake for his faith in Oxford in 1555. Latimer said this to his congregation. When you find these three things in your heart, repentance, faith, and a desire to leave sin, then you may be sure your names are written in the book, and you may be sure also that you are elected and predestinated to everlasting life. So keep repenting. Keep trusting Christ. Keep taking God at His word. Believe Him, and believe Him when He assures you that He secures your eternal salvation from the start to the finish. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for such great promises that we have in Your Word. We thank You that You've not left our salvation in our hands. That You, by sovereign grace, planned it, purposed it, accomplished it, made it known by the effectual working of Your Spirit and Word, turning us from sin, enabling us to trust Christ. Having justified us, you will indeed, without fail, bring us all the way home to glory. Oh, Lord, strengthen your people today with this incredible promise. Help us to live in the light of it. Help us to be full of joy and contentment because of it. And open the eyes of those who are strangers to your grace today. Do what only you can do for them, we ask. For Jesus' sake, amen.